0: This is the One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Doctor Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note: these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider. And discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. And now to today's episode Interstitial cystitis is a chronic urinary tract disorder that affects men and women worldwide. In this episode, I bring on our special guest, Dr. Deanna Berman from Vermont. She is a naturopathic physician and licensed midwife who specializes in interstitial cystitis and other women's health disorders. She's going to take us through the inner workings of interstitial cystitis, how it affects the urinary tract, and how there is a solution to help people who are suffering with this. So without further ado, I welcome our guest, Dr. Deanna Berman. Dr. Berman, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. It's great to have you on today.
1: Thank you for having me, for inviting me.
0: You're welcome. Uh, So I thought we could get started hearing a little bit about your background related to naturopathic medicine and specifically interstitial cystitis. What brought you into learning about interstitial cystitis and becoming an expert in it?
1: Well, my interest in women's health started early in life. Um, I learned early about the interrelationship between the body and the mind, um, and about how diet and lifestyle affects the body. As I studied at Bastyr University to learn about naturopathic medicine, and I specialized in women's health and midwifery, so learning about natural childbirth, I always had an interest in helping women to um, stay healthy, and also with preconception and preventing complications in pregnancy. So um, I was going on in my practice. I've been in practice since 2001. I had my daughters, and again, reinforcing the need for women's health. I was very interested in um, helping mothers to um, help their daughters grow up in a healthy way. So, About uh, 10 years ago, I started learning about Lyme disease and uh, autoimmune disease because my mother developed these conditions, and I really focused in on chronic Lyme. Um, I met a woman at um, the ILADS conference, which is the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, and she was a specialist in, in interstitial cystitis. So- she started teaching me about five years ago about interstitial cystitis, maybe six years ago now, and starting to look at it more as a chronic illness and not as a localized bladder issue. So I had been treating interstitial cystitis because my focus was women's health. So I dealt with a lot of vaginal and and bladder issues, um, but but she changed my perspective completely. And I, I studied with her as much as possible and communicated with her. And then when she retired, I started taking on some of her patients. And um, then I started reading about the chronic vaginal and bladder issues and, and starting to really understand how we have created an epidemic of what we call interstitial cystitis for both men and women at this point. Hmm.
0: I want to hear more about that. Um, That sounds like a really um, interesting viewpoint. Um, So, tell you know for those of those of us who aren't as familiar with interstitial cystitis, um, what what's the prevalence of it? Like, how many people deal with interstitial cystitis? You know, what's how often is it seen um, in the general population?
1: Well, I'd like to preface the answer with the fact that we have not had updated statistics since 2012. That is a long time in medicine. You know, things have really accelerated. And since I've been in practice 25 years... I've seen an acceleration of certain conditions, including interstitial cystitis. So, the, the statistics I'm going to quote are from 2012, which okay. are 2.7% to 6.5% of men and women, um, more common in women. Um, but if you take into account the fact that we have an increased incidence of UTIs um, just across the board, men and women. Um, as well as an increase um, in antibiotic-resistant infections. And a lot of the UTIs have antibiotic-resistant infections. And I'll speak more about that later. Um, 50 to 60% of adult women will have at least one UTI in their lifetime. The incidence goes up after menopause. And within six months of getting a UTI, there is a 27% chance of another UTI and a 2.7% chance of a third UTI. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'll speak more about why this is important. But if you look at these statistics and listen to the rest of the podcast, you'll understand that the increased incidence of UTIs is probably linked to the increased incidence of IC, and we need some updated statistics.
0: Okay. So I'm getting there's, there's this overlap of between UTI frequency and and IC interstitial cystitis, and I'm looking forward to hearing the connection between the two. Um, so when you're viewing interstitial cystitis, that's difficult to say sometimes. Um, it how do you view it functionally or holistically, like in that paradigm of how it interfaces with other conditions or other systems of the body?
1: So. Basically, if you have been diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, you have been dealing with a chronic pain and urinary frequency for some of my patients, 20 years. Um, many of my patients are on prescription medication for pain, sleep issues, anxiety, frequent urination, depression, and more. Um, so, and they're using, they're basically managing their life. So it, it, it pretty much affects the whole body. And, and when you take antibiotics, because you have a flare or because you have another UTI, then that affects the GI system, which again, affects the mind and, and other things. Um, they also undergo many procedures like, um, and other procedures, um, that, actually put them at risk for more UTIs and also cause a lot of stress. A lot of my patients talk about trauma associated with these procedures. Um, So they've also been told there's no solution, which affects, you know, your whole outlook on life. Um, So they try Mm -hmm. medication, supplements, dietary changes, and more. Um, And most find a balance to, you know, with these changes to keep their symptoms at a minimum, but are always scared about another flare pretty much. Mm-hmm. So I see, I see as a, I see, I see as a chronic illness.
2: <laughs> so mm-hmm. I say mm-hmm. I
1: see instead of interstitial cystitis. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I really work with each woman to find the underlying causes and contributing factors. Um, and then, you know, dealing with the sleep, the adrenals, the gut, and all these other issues that are, you know, are concurrent pretty much at the point they see me.
0: Okay. So, maybe we could dive into the symptoms and signs and physical exam findings and maybe lab tests now. Just take us through that. And, you know, if someone is thinking they have IC or might have a patient that they're concerned might have IC, what would really show up, um, you know, with symptoms, signs, and physical, physical exam and lab tests? So, the main
1: symptoms um, and and not everybody has the same symptoms. They range uh, some, but mostly the symptoms are urinary frequency, urgency, dribbling of urine, painful urination, burning uh, before, during, or after urination. Sometimes when the bladder fills, um, urethral pain, like just pain in the urethra, or burning, uh, lower abdominal pain and bloating, pelvic pain or vulvodynia. Um, nerve pain, um, like in the in the lower abdomen pelvic area, um, pain during sex, um, and then as for lab tests, um, there's really not a lab test to diagnose interstitial cystitis. Um, if you have continual symptoms, the the symptoms I'm I'm speaking about, or some of those symptoms, usually you'll go back to your your doctor. Um, They may send you to a urogynecologist or to a urologist. They will basically do a a test for a UTI. If it comes up negative, uh, you may end up getting a cystoscopy where they, they go in and they look into the bladder. Most of my patients have had cystoscopy and it's negative. Very few have lesions. Some have lesions, but it's extremely rare. Like of all my patients, I've maybe had one that had lesions. Um, mm-hmm. So IC is really a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that if you have bladder symptoms and you do not have an infection, then you are told you have IC.
0: Hmm. So in the cystoscopy, do they do any type of sampling of tissue? Um, is there or is there any kind of uh, biopsies that are ever taken place in IC?
1: Rarely, rarely. Not with IC. I mean, if it looks, you know, it might be a little red, but like because of inflammation, but even that is not very common.
0: Okay. So there's obviously a need for better diagnostics or, you know, further understanding of some of the features that aren't as classic.
1: Well, I I don't think, I, I think what really has to happen is we need to start looking at the bladder microbiome and not just seeing infection versus no infection. And we need to have better testing for bacterial infections and the bladder microbiome.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So let's go into that a little bit more. So what what is the underlying dysfunction? Like you have, say, a healthy bladder and then compare that to a bladder that is dealing with IC. What's going on? What's the difference?
1: Well, a healthy bladder has a balance. There are two things. It has a balance of a microbiome and it has a mucin layer that protects from infection. And according to the research, there's about 200 different bacteria that live in the bladder. So, you know, that's a healthy bladder. I believe IC is a chronic embedded infection or infections or you could say a dysbiosis. And so what I mean by a dysbiosis is we have a healthy bladder microbiome with 200 bacteria when we're born, let's say. And and that even is not even clear at this point because so many women have taken antibiotics in pregnancy. So that's altered the microbiome of the bladder. But You know, let's say we're born with a healthy bladder microbiome and a healthy mucin layer, a layer that protects the bladder wall from infection. The the bladder is so important because we detox so many chemicals and heavy metals and things through our bladder, and they sit in our bladder for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Basically, everything goes through our our bladder. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, very important to keep it healthy. So then, let's say you're, you know, five, six, you get an ear infection, you take an antibiotic. Okay, that's going to affect the microbiome. What grows back is not going to be the same microbiome. Every time Mm -hmm. you take an antibiotic, it's going to kill off something in there. And even herbs, what I'm finding is even some of the herbs that we're using are killing off our healthy microbiome. It says people are on herbs now. Herbal medicine was not meant to be used continuously. For months but now because we have so many different uh infectious conditions or you know dysbiotic conditions and SIBO and on and on people are taking herbs for months as a preventative sometimes they see it but basically that's affecting the microbiome as well so then what grows back is going to be different and so we're, we're you know repeated courses of antibiotics the same thing and also with the exposure to antibiotics what we develop is embedded infections and and some of the research done by a a researcher shows these it it actually alters the bladder wall the cell wall of the bladder Hmm. so Hmm. you know that leaves you more susceptible to these you know bladder irritation symptoms which is basically what i see is you know frequency urgency irritation burning all these conditions hmm
0: okay yeah um I mean, is it fair to say there's some overlap of what's going on with like intestinal permeability of the digestive tract with the IC presentation?
1: Yes, there is. Um, There's also been some theories, and I don't speak much about it, but about permeability or leaky bladder. Um, So Mm -hmm. some people say leaky bladder, but I have not found enough evidence to show there's definitely similarities between the gut and the bladder, you know, in development. Um, Mm -hmm. but I haven't seen enough, you know, research is, is not updated as far as these conditions Mm -hmm. are going. So, um, there are individual researchers looking at it, but yes, leaky bladder we could say is possibly part of the problem. (laughs)
0: Mm-hmm. Any other non-infectious kind of connections that you see?
1: Yes, um, definitely histamine issues are a contributing factor for some. Um, I see a lot of like we could, some would say eosinophilic cystitis, um, but, uh, you know, patients that have um, like, you know, history of allergies could have, um, you know, irritation from foods in the bladder, and the histamine will definitely affect the bladder. Uh, the other thing I see is if people have been exposed to mold, um, that is a problem in the mm. bladder. And um, other conditions, um, Lyme disease, I, I see patients who have Lyme disease where they've had chronic Lyme disease, and, and it's cu- the, the Lyme disease symptoms are mostly gone, but they still have residual bladder issues. And they know mm. that, bla- that the spirochetes can embed in the bladder wall. Uh, So those are conditions I see pretty commonly. And then vaginal infections are definitely, um, I see a lot of women. That's why for every one of my patients, I do a test called a Microgen DX test that tests both Hmm. the vaginal microbiome and the bladder microbiome. And it checks Hmm. 50,000 different bacteria. Now, it's really important to work with a doctor who understands how to read this test because a lot of doctors will get the test results and they'll say, oh, this is fine. It's it's just normal bacteria. Uh, but, mm-hmm. the, you know, and I could go more into the bladder and vaginal microbiomes, but, you know, the basically they're different than the gut microbiome. And right. we need to understand more about this because the vaginal infections are definitely causing bladder symptoms. hmm Okay. So
0: when, you, when you're reading that test, it's, it's not necessarily like abnormal versus normal. It's sort of like trends or, um, dominant populations. Um, you're, you're looking more between the lines versus just like a hard kind of cutoff of abnormal versus abnormal. normal.
1: Right. I'm looking at it more, um, well, and the vaginal and the bladder are different, but so I, I just, let's just talk about the bladder. So when I'm looking at a bladder test, um, the first thing I'm looking at on my test is, do they have any resistance genes? Because Hmm. that's going to indicate, you know, possibly um, how much, how resistant that bacteria will be. Because a resistance gene, all that means is there's a bacteria there, E. coli, enterococcus, Klebsiella, whatever it is, that has resistance to that particular antibiotic. I have patients that mm-hmm. have that are young, 25 years old, that have multiple resistance genes to five or six antibiotics, and they've never taken those antibiotics. So, you know, looking at resistance genes. Then I'm looking at, okay, what am I seeing here? The, the test that I do, the microgen test, is a two part test. It's a PCR, and then advanced DNA testing. So I look at both parts of it. Okay, do they have a high or a low or medium bacterial load? Okay. So that tells me, is the bacterial load high? Most of my patients have a high bacterial load, but some have a low and a medium. Then I'm looking at what bacteria are showing up. Is it just one bacteria like E. coli, or is it, I have patients with 10 or 12 bacteria in there. And then I'm looking at percentages, what's the dominant bacteria. So I I really study the test. And then I'm looking over time because just because we treat this it doesn't mean it's going to go away. And many of my patients, which is kind of interesting, they're taking d manos for, you know, a few months to years. And I look at the test and, I'm, and, I, and I see that, oh, there's E. coli. d manos is supposed to help prevent the adherence of E. coli to the bladder wall. It's not getting rid of the infection. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm looking gotcha. at this and understanding my patient. So that I'm not looking at it just one test, one treatment. That's how we used to see UTIs. You have a UTI, you take an antibiotic, it goes away. And many of my patients have been through that hundreds of times sometimes, you know, and then the antibiotic stops working at some point. Yeah. And that's when they come in and they say they have IC.
0: Okay. So um, a lot of people, as you mentioned, are told that this is just something they're going to have to live with um, and there's no necessary cure and maybe just um, some palliative treatments or what have you. What what have you found can actually, what's sort of some of the path to restore this function and get kind of reduce the dysfunction?
1: So I've developed a five-part program and as I said, I'm looking at the whole person, and I'm also looking at all the contributing factors. But these are the main things relating to healing the bladder: um, using biofilm disruptors to break up the biofilms. If the problem's been going on for more than a few months, then and and they've or the patient has had recurrent UTIs in the past, they probably need phase two biofilm disruptors. Most people take phase one biofilm disruptors like Interphase Plus, but They really need a stronger one. And many of my patients, it's amazing, feel better on biofilm disruptors alone. There's two things I, I, you know, looking at that, it's it's like, you know, like I had one call me this morning, oh my God, the biofilm disruptors made such a difference. And Mm -hmm. because the biofilms in and of themselves will release inflammatory cells or cytokines. And those Mm -hmm. are causing some of the symptoms. So the second part...
0: so the, the difference between the two phases, uh, can you just, um, you know, sort of basically tell us the difference between the two phase one and phase two bio?
1: Yeah. So phase one biofilms are, are I actually have a whole podcast on this on my website.
0: Okay. <laughs> so, but
1: <laughs> basically the quick answer is it's kind of a spectrum and our body's always making up biofilms and breaking down biofilms. And the more... Uh, you've had biofilms around, they become stronger and harder to penetrate. Our body will naturally break down biofilms with enzymes and hydrochloric acid. And that's kind of a natural process. But we've really altered our diet and and many other things that have increased our risk of more stronger biofilms that are harder to break up. So, and even the phase two biofilm disruptor I use, for some, it's not even strong enough when we need to go to a prescription biofilm disruptor.
0: Okay. Gotcha. So it's just more, phase two is just a different level of, of um, biofilm disruption.
1: Well, they're just stronger. They're stronger. stronger. They're, gotcha. they're harder to break. They're harder to penetrate. There, there's some other factors that I, you know, are more detailed, but basically that's the difference. Okay.
0: Okay. All right, we'll put a link to the podcast. I'll I'll hunt that down and put that into the show notes. Um, so uh, again, you know, sorry to take you off track there a little bit, but yeah, to hear more about your five part program.
1: Yeah, so the first part is breaking up biofilms. Then we identify the infections in the bladder and the vagina, and then we treat the infections in the bladder and the vagina, decreasing inflammation in the bladder and healing the bladder wall and then re-establish a healthy microbiome in the bladder and the vagina. Um, it's also important to, to address the contributing factors that can lead to these bladder infections. Um, hormonal imbalances such as PCOS, irregular cycles, heavy menses, because that will alter the pH of the vagina mostly, But and I'm not exactly sure, there's not much research on how it affects the bladder, but I definitely see a correlation because most women will get worse before menses. Um, Mm -hmm. So addressing endometriosis is very important and fibroids because fibroids can put pressure on the bladder. Um, Mm. So eliminating food sensitivities or allergies, um, addressing histamine issues, addressing GI dysbiosis and GI infections, addressing mold issues and Lyme disease because these affect the immune system and mycotoxins can affect the bladder. And then hygiene is also really important. A lot of women are shaving these days, and the research actually shows that um, vaginal shaving can increase the risk of UTIs.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And you know you've been um, doing this quite some time, as you mentioned. Was there a moment or a pivotal? a lesson or finding or something that you came across that really ch- changed the course of how you care for IC?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, the, the, the first part was realizing it was an infection. And the second part was realizing that this needs to be addressed as a chronic illness um, and not just looking at the bladder that really the whole person needs to be addressed. Okay. I used to, and, I used to just I just, use one. I used to use, Blatteries and kava kava. That's all I did for IC pretty much. And then, and then I'd say, that's all we have. That's what I thought. And, and this is, Mm -hmm. you know, opened up my eyes. This is uh, not all we have. We have so much more to do.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting how, you know, your, your background in, in infectious disease that you had leading up to this probably, you know, you already had that foundation and, um, kind of packed in what you were, how you were treating it already?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, understanding infectious disease and autoimmune disease helped me so much. And then also my experience with chronic vaginal infections and abnormal paps and all these gynecological issues has helped.
0: Okay. So you, you talked at the beginning a little bit about the UTI connection, um, uh can you, can you just talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I think you've explained that, but there was just a moment you shared with, you know, as far as um, how we're treating UTIs and how that might be opening up um, the increased frequency of IC.
1: Yes. Um, so basically what, what happens, we get a UTI and UTIs are very common. And this causes irritation and inflammation to the bladder wall. Then you take an antibiotic, and this alters the microbiome in the bladder. So then you have a change in the immune system in the bladder, and you have irritation in the bladder wall. Now, sometimes, there's not as much research in the bladder, as I said, but in the gut, sometimes, you know, a natural microbiome will reestablish itself, Okay. But again, we don't, you know, it's hard to even know what that is because the lab I work with, Microgen, is doing some studies on this, looking at what is a healthy microbiome. But it's almost impossible to find somebody who's never taken an antibiotic. So then Mm -hmm. you've got this inflammation, irritation to the bladder wall, um, and the microbiome is not as healthy. The bladder wall is not as healthy and, and able to prevent another infection. And then you may get another infection. Okay. And this t- next infection may be just as bad, sometimes not as bad. Sometimes the bacterial load is low. So women will go in, it could, this could be the second infection or the 30th infection. They'll go in to their doctor and say, Oh, I have a UTI. I have the symptoms of a UTI. The doctor will do a test and it will be negative. Now that's where the podcast on testing is important that I've done because why is it negative? But there's a lot of reasons, and the primary reason I am seeing is that the, if the bacterial load is below the detectable limit, which is 10 to the 7, it will come up negative. Many of my patients no longer have 10 to the 7 when I'm doing the testing. It's 10 to the 6 or 10 to the 5, but they have three or four bacteria, so their overall bacterial load is still 10 to the 7. So that infection is being missed. So then they say, oh, well, you don't have an infection, but the patient still has symptoms. So they send them Hmm. to urologist. Then they may have a cystoscopy, which 1% of people who have any kind of catheterization are at risk of another UTI. So then they may be exposed to another bacteria. And then, and that might, because bacteria live like in a symbiotic relationship. They don't think, Mm -hmm. oh, E. coli is more virulent in the bladder Oh, you know, they're, they're the dominant one. So we're going to give them space to grow, you know? So you could have three or five different pathogenic bacteria in the bladder, all living symbiotically living together, but never, none of them is at 10 to the seven. So, so that, that's a big, um, issue. And, um, so then, you Mm. know, women will go and then they'll say, and then they'll be told, Oh, well, you still have bladder symptoms. You must have interstitial cystitis, so now hmm. let's give you some, you know, something to treat the pain, or or try this I C diet and see if it helps. And it helps some, um, it, but it doesn't get rid of the problem. Or they'll try five different supplements, um, and then sometimes they're using um, like the probiotics. Very commonly, women will use these probiotics for women. And those, we don't want to see, so they have lactobacillus crispatus and lactobacillus ginsengi and some of these lactobacillus strains that we do not want in the bladder. And Hmm. so the, in the vaginal microbiome is different than the bladder. So sometimes, and sometimes they're given um, lactobacillus strains that we don't want in either the bladder or the vagina. So, because there's no regulation as far as supplements and, and, and probiotics. Um, And the research on probiotics has actually shown that many of them have extraneous bacteria. It's a live product. So Mm -hmm. if it's getting in, if it's, you know, if it's bypassing our our hydrochloric acid, if people, especially another contributing factor that I I forgot to mention was um, medication like proton pump inhibitors, because that stops your hydrochloric acid and hydrochloric acid is very important for preventing infections and also preventing biofilm formation. Mm-hmm. So th- that's another contributing factor.
0: Wow. That was really helpful. Thanks for explaining that. Um, these are things that, you know, um you would just never think of as you know, I you can think of so many situations where someone's convinced that they have a UTI and um they have all the symptoms and then um the lab test comes back negative and they're just kind of, you know, told, you know, to shrug it off or what have you. Um, and increase hydration or you know hopefully it will go away in a few days but it's really um interesting that you point you know what you pointed out as far as the the bacterial threshold so um well you've helped us with a lot of very useful information i um, i'm hoping that you could give us some take-home points uh, just like a take-home message and then um also share with us you know what you're up to professionally how people can follow you or maybe work with you
1: yeah so um The take home messages are that interstitial cystitis is treatable and you do not need to to suffer and you do not need to spend your life managing your symptoms. Um, The IC diet helps, but eventually, for a lot of people, it stops helping and it can cause other problems as well. Um, You need to work with a practitioner who will understand this and not look at it just like infection or no infection. And not just say you have IC, you need to just manage those symptoms with medication. Also, you know, really looking at the vaginal health, the GI health, and the hormones is very important. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really important early on. So, you know, many, what's happening, another contributing factor, I believe, is we don't have an individual doctor anymore. Now we have um going to a walk-in clinic or so many women with UTIs what they'll do is they just go to a walk-in clinic or a Planned Parenthood and they nobody knows their situation so they go into one place they get an antibiotic then they go into another place and get another antibiotic and then they go to another place and get another antibiotic and this is a contributing factor because somebody you need to work with somebody even one UTI i would say it, it, that each UTI increases your risk of developing IC. So if you have one UTI and it goes away and never comes back great. But unfortunately, many women are not even getting the right antibiotics because they're doing a test and then they're treating, here's macrobid. And you know, take the macrobid for 3 days. The the dosing may not be correct, the uh, length of time that they're taking it may not be correct and that also can contribute to another bladder infection. The the bladder infections, the uropathogens, the bacteria that are affecting the bladder are getting more resistant to treatment. There's a researcher in Seattle who's doing research on E. coli specifically because that's the dominant causative agent, and he's seeing that it's resistant to so many treatments. And I use a lot of natural treatments when I can, um, and it definitely helps. But sometimes we can't get rid of the E. coli in the bladder. We can get rid of the symptoms. And, and that brings up another whole, you know, thing about what what I'm seeing in testing in healthy individuals is that sometimes even without symptoms, there's pathogenic bacteria at a high load in the bladder where what they would say is, oh, you have um, asymptomatic bacteria. And it used to be theorized that we treat asymptomatic bacteria, especially in pregnancy. Um, and I, I'd like to say one, one moment about that. Um, and, but you know, the question is, is that abnormal if they don't have symptoms? Because what we're seeing is that healthy women without symptoms are showing high amounts of bacteria that would normally be considered pathogenic in the bladder. I want to say one more take home message about, um, conception and infertility because the rates of infertility are going up. And what I'm seeing is that men and women are carrying around infections that can cause fertility issues, especially enterococcus is research on that. It's another common um, infection I see in both the prostate and the bladder. And I even see it in the vagina now. So um, uh, some of the other things, our sexual practices, I'm actually writing a book about this. Um, Our sexual practices are contributing to this epidemic and also to our infertility epidemic. Because if you have or your partner, male or female, has enterococcus in the bladder or in the prostate, that can decrease the chances of conceiving so um important to look at that. Um, and also, I recently had a patient who had post-vasectomy um, infections. He has no symptoms. And a lot of the men don't have symptoms, which is very interesting mm-hmm. as well.
0: Hmm. Wow, those are really yeah. valuable pearls. Thank you. Um, and how, how would people go about working with you or um, following your your view as a professional?
1: So I am on Instagram at drdeannaberman and my website, which is com, And the podcast, I have three podcasts up there under podcast, and I will also put this one up, hopefully. And then um, I have a Facebook group um, called UTI Recovery, mostly for women who are dealing with UTIs, and uh, and men. Um, And I'm working on a YouTube channel at Dr. Deanna Berman and on a book right now. So if you follow me on any of those, I will, you know, share more information. I also have an ebook I wrote um, that I'm going to update that talks about uh, a diet really for preventing UTIs And to talk about like foods that help with breaking up biofilms, also getting prebiotic and probiotic foods into your diet and how to find the right diet for you. I have a program called creating a personalized nutrition plan, which I believe it's every person is different. And I see so many people who have been diagnosed with interstitial cystitis that the IC diet does not work for. And it's because everyone's different. The pathogens are different. Their gut is different. So you really need to individualize your nutrition plan.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Berman. This has been really insightful, informative. Um, I, I really appreciate you sharing your wealth of knowledge with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. Now listen in for a preview of our next episode. So I'm here with Dr. Jill Krista, who will be on in our next episode, speaking to us about bile and its relationship with mycotoxin illness and mold illness. And uh, we're going to get to know her just a little bit. So Dr. Krista, who had the biggest influence on you becoming a naturopathic doctor?
2: Oh, definitely my mother. Mm -hmm. I came from a family where we live that way, naturopathically, and uh, my mom was had some health issues and got really into learning and sharing, and it, it really sparked an interest in me.
0: Great. And what will we be learning during our interview together?
2: We get to talk about my favorite underappreciated fluid in the body, which is bile. I'm a real bilephile, so I want people to understand its role when it comes to not just mold and mycotoxin illness but toxin illnesses in general
0: wonderful and what is currently on your reading list
2: i am reading circe right now it's a fun read and i love like sci-fi and fantasy and that kind of thing so it's it's my summer indulgence nothing medical
0: (laughs) okay and what is something you personally do to stay healthy
2: get outside every day Yeah. And move my body. And even when I was mold sick, it, it, I still got out there. Even if I couldn't move much, I moved.
0: Wonderful. Okay. Well, we look forward to visiting with you on the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the one thing podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews we tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate. If these, the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from that for the, the episode to them. And I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the one thing podcast. And again, Much appreciation for you being here with me.